Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to the 1000th episode of T4C. When I launched this show in August 2018, I had no idea how long it would run, but it's become a part of my life. And honestly, having had the opportunity to interview hundreds of professionals in dozens of industries has changed my life in ways I couldn't even imagine. And that's why I created this show in the first place, to empower one million college students to turn their degrees into careers they'll love. Little did I know back then, the same thing would happen to me. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for a special 1000th episode of T4C, featuring some of my favorite guests over the last four years. And if you want to listen to their entire T4C episode so you can learn more about what they do and how they built their careers, check out show notes for a link to their episodes. So let's flash back really quickly to when you were at university, you went to Harvard and you majored in East Asian studies. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree, Ming? When you graduated? Definitely not. I had no conception of what I wanted to do after college. But I would say during the summers of college, I used them to eliminate things. I lived in Hong Kong and I knew, oh, I could live in Hong Kong. This is a really fun city. Or I taught at Wellesley's summer school and I was like, oh, I do not like teaching. And then I worked for an art auction house. I said, hmm, I don't think I'm going to do that later. So it was really helpful during college and summers to sort of figure out where I wanted to live, what I didn't want to do, because it was easier to eliminate. And But I still didn't graduate thinking, oh, I want to be in for-profit education. I had no idea what that meant. And I just fell into my first job through random luck at Star TV. Yeah. So let me ask you, what was that first job and how did you get it? When you say random luck, what did that look like? So I knew one thing after college that I definitely wanted to try living in Hong Kong. So if you can decide like kind of what city you're interested in living in, like that's great. And then I had no idea what I would be good at or what I could get hired for. So I met as many people as possible through contacts. You know, you don't have to go to a fancy school like Harvard. Talk to people. People are so willing to talk to college students or young people, even if you don't go to college. And People want to be helpful to other people, I've generally found. And so I talked to someone who was who knew somebody who was working at Star TV and they needed a business analyst. I 
did not study business and I did not do analytical stuff in college. I was a liberal arts major in history and I did that for a year. And then another opportunity came up to work in production. And then they were looking for an on-air presenter for their children's channel. And it just sort of happened like that. I did not have a pre-programmed plan. And I must say, I know people are really worried about making money. And I was lucky not to graduate with debt. But I did not graduate with a high paying job at all. But I would say, you know, use your youth to take chances and pay off your credit card bill. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Don't live on your credit cards for sure. And what Ming was just describing there is networking and doing informational interviews, which is something that I talk about at least every other day on LinkedIn. So please follow me and I will teach you how to do that. Two final T4C questions, Ming. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, maybe you even failed. I've been fired twice in my 40s and they turned out to be incredible gifts that forced me to pivot into different industries. I ask my guests this question, not because I'm looking to embarrass them, far from it. It's really to empower our young listeners to realize that fails have the biggest opportunities for learning. And it's also important to know that you'll get through it. And perhaps if there was a lesson that you learned in the process, me. Sure. I mean, this one is most relevant for when I was in my 20s. And since your listeners are in your 20s, in my first job, I was very junior as a business analyst and we were looking at media assets to purchase. And one of the purchasing, one of the things I had to do was run sort of a, a report or do a study about what if we acquired an adult movie channel which is basically porn. And I felt super uncomfortable. I talked to somebody at the office about it. And I'm like, I really do not believe in this. Like, I don't want any part of putting porn on a hotel network. And I was just, again, I was my first job out of college and I did not believe in it. And one of the reasons why I applied to business school was that I was like, hmm, I do not want to be part of this. I don't know how to handle it. I think I figured, I don't know whether that counts as a fail, but I think that when you're young and you're asked to do things and people now are much better about it, standing up for things they did not necessarily believe in and felt uncomfortable with. I ended up applying to business school because of that. So you use that as your get out of jail free card? Yes. Okay. Final question. If you could go back to Harvard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh my God, I tell all these people going to college all the time now, <laughs> go to your professor's office hours. I mean, that sounds like super basic, but we had some rock star professors at Harvard and I happened to go to like one or two office hours. And the guy I went to was teaching this art and literature course. And his name is Simon Shama. He's like on the BBC now. He's amazing. He writes for the FT. And I'm like, why didn't I do that with more of my professors? Take advantage of these brilliant brains at your disposal. Go to their office hours, ask them questions. Yeah. And develop a relationship with them because they know people too. They can help open doors for you as well. And at the very least, they can be a letter of reference to your first job or whatever that may be. And yeah, you'll learn. You'll learn a ton. 
from getting to speak with them outside the classroom. That is great advice, Ming. So Alex, you graduated in December of 2016. Back in the fall of 2016, did you have any idea what you were going to do with your double major in computer science and economics? Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of time in my life because I think coming into college, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. I was proficient in a number of subjects. There wasn't any that were like, oh, I'm awful at this. Like I wasn't like awful at math. I wasn't like awful at writing. And that's not to like put myself up. It was more so that it was less clear what I should do. And I sort of kind of blindly followed this path of engineering. I was actually involved with like nuclear engineering at first, working for a company that my dad worked at. And I remember I took my first internship and I was like, I cannot do this for my life. This is not something that personally interests me. It's it's objectively cool, but it's not a fit. And so going into my junior year, I actually made this late change in majors from engineering to computer science and economics. And that was really done because of these side projects I was doing. Every time we spun something up, it was like software could help solve that. And I just wanted to get closer to it. So going into my sort of last semester, I had a number of internships under my belt. I had these what I'd call like kind of hot majors in the tech space and as well as the economics degree. However, I actually didn't have a full-time offer going into the final semester. And that caused a lot of anxiety for me because I didn't have the best GPA because I invested a lot of time into these side projects and internships and all that. And I also was like, I want to go into this field of product management. It's extremely competitive to get into. And so what I really did is I just got extremely focused. I said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do everything in my power to land a role there. I honed in on two or three companies that I felt I had a chance of getting into that role. And Intuit happened to be one of the companies that recruits heavily from Wisconsin because Obviously, you know, Silicon Valley companies aren't always coming out to the Midwest, which I think is a shame because there's a lot of great talent out there. But fortunately for me, uh, Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, his wife was alumni. They invested heavily in recruiting and I was able to make the right connection and and land a role. And it's been truly life changing so far. And I can't imagine not starting in this space, given how much I care about it. So you've alluded to this now, the fact that you didn't have a great GPA and you did manage to get your foot in the door at Intuit. You actually had, I think, four offers by the time you graduated. Is that right? Yeah, I was able to lock down four different ones, which I think it it was done in a very incremental way. But yeah, there were four on the table at the time, which didn't make the decision any easier, but it's a good problem to have. So I want to tee up a great story in your book, Modern College, in which you talk about the winter. It's probably almost always the winter at Wisconsin because it's so cold. It's the middle of a blizzard and you were leading, I think you were the president of a club and you had had an event. You had a program that was due at midnight in one of your classes and there was a career fair that was taking place like a mile away on campus. And you're like, do I go? Do I not go? Ah! And you ended up deciding to go. And while you're running through the snow, I, I my heart breaks where you fell down, you hurt yourself. And so you kept powering through and you made it to the career fair. And why don't you pick up the story there and tell us what happened? 
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, to your point, I, I felt kind of dumb as I'm going into this. We we have this center. Uh, it's called the Cole Center. It's where a lot of sports teams play, and they set up the career fair. And as I'm walking in there, I'm just kind of soaking wet because I fell in the snow. I'm actually getting there for the last 10 minutes of the career fair. So most of the booths, they were already taken down. So, like, people have been there for hours. I've been, to your point, uh, or what you referenced earlier, like at this meeting for this org that I was deeply involved in. So I'm in there and I was like, okay, I just want to talk to one company. I want to talk to Dell. I know they're in the tech space. If I can just get there and maybe get an intro, maybe something will happen. I don't know. So I'm walking up there. I I find the map and I'm like, okay, Dell's like, you know, on the other side. So I, I sprint over there and I kind of take like a minute to compose myself. And I see kind of guy wrapping up with one person. And as the other person walks away, I walk up and I, I shake his hand and I'm sure I'm like sweaty and I was like mumbling my words because I'm, I'm so anxious. And initially it kind of goes nowhere. I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm a big fan of Dell. And you can tell the guy is just completely exhausted. He's like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go back to my hotel and get ready to fly back to Texas. And I actually like go to turn away and I'm like, well, crap, I'm going to fail my program because I went to this career fair. Um, I didn't get any offers. And I kind of just had this like moment of inspiration where I was like, I knew a friend on campus, his name was Brian. He had mentioned he'd worked at Dell. And I was like, I know personal connections mean a lot in the professional space. Like, I'm going to name drop him and just see what happens. So I actually turned back and I'm like, hey, random question. You by chance know Brian. And this guy had actually ended up working with him at the same time at Dell. And they were really good friends. And that immediately struck up a conversation. He was like, oh, you know, Brian, okay, let's get you on the interview docket. So I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is incredible. So I, I gave him my email. The next day, I got an email from a VP for a slot later in the week. And the rest is history. I got an internship at Dell, which helped launch my career. And it's just amazing to look back on. It would have been very easy for me to have just said, I don't want to go to this career fair. I need to focus on this school assignment. It's cold out. I don't want to go there. There's only five minutes. And it's often during these moments you least expect it that the biggest changes come in your life. So I'm really glad I went back to (laughs) I bet. And as you point out in your book, Modern College, the fact is you were involved not only in these other enterprises on campus, these different startups, but you were also a member of a fraternity. And this guy, Brian, was a frat brother of yours. And for our viewers and our listeners, you point out in your book, they need to be looking around at their classmates that they're meeting through all these different activities as the beginning of their professional network. Absolutely. And it's funny because I actually wasn't super involved in my fraternity. I I think a lot of people these days, they go and do fraternities or sororities to meet people. And I didn't really have that issue because I went to college in the same state I'd grown up in. So I entered campus with probably over like 100, if not 200 people where I, I could walk up and have a conversation with them and I knew them. But I was intrigued because one thing I saw was that these fraternities would attract a lot of people from the coast who basically didn't know anyone. And they were like, we want like a network. And I'm glad I did it because I met all these different people. And although I wasn't as involved in the process, and there's certainly plenty of scrutiny on the fraternity system, probably for good reason, it did introduce me to people and it it taught me the power of a network. And so it was just another organization to meet people that had different interests than me or the same interests and could actually give me 
sort of an intro to a space. So whether you're in a fraternity or in academic org, I, I did all of them. And it's just some of the best networking you can possibly do in college. And what I love about your story, Alex, is that it's not like that recruiter was like, oh, you know, Brian, well, I'm going to give Brian a call and he and I can talk about you. He went from mm-hmm. like zero to 60. I was like, yeah. you know, Brian. Okay, well, forget about it. I don't. I'm not even going to ask you what your GPA is. I'm yep. not going to ask you what courses you've taken. I'm just going to put you on the fast track to yep. connect with the VP who offers you a job. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely speaks to, I think, you know, the importance of connections in society. And it's funny, uh, Blake, Blake Roth is his name. Shout out, Blake. He ended up being a good friend of mine down at Dell, too, when I interned there and someone I still would gladly pick up the phone for and help him in any way I could. But I think it speaks to this wider thing of the importance of networks. And one thing that I think has become apparent you know, especially in recent times is not everyone has access to these networks. Not everyone knows people in professional spaces. Not everyone is on these powerful platforms like LinkedIn. And one thing that I like that Jeff Weiner, our now former CEO of LinkedIn has really invested in is this idea of like the plus one pledge. And how do you take people with these connected networks and resources and reach out to people that are aren't in the network, right? Because this is the only way that you break, I think, some of these cycles in our society of basically people not being able to have opportunities. And if you're someone in that space, all they need is that one connection to enter. And so on the one hand, I always tell people, do as much work on your own to tap into these networks. But if you are someone in a position where you have a powerful network, you have opportunities, make sure to that you seek out people that don't have the opportunity and give them an intro. Because again, a lot of times it's who you know. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing until there's people not knowing anyone. And I think that's what we need to make sure we do is give everyone an equal chance at these networks. And then by all means, like once someone's in a network, judge them on their merit, judge them on their skill sets. But we need to make sure that we don't fundamentally block out people from these networks from having the opportunity. And I'm fortunate to work at a company like LinkedIn that I think puts a lot of emphasis on this. And it's not only a benefit to LinkedIn because it's how we grow, but I think it's how you build a stronger economy as well. David, I want to talk a little bit about some of the internships that you had. One at Scholastic as a sales and marketing intern. I believe at Scholastic, you worked under the umbrella of Scholastic, but you worked for Trade Klutz, which is such a great name. Another at HelloFresh US as a student consultant. And then lastly, at LinkedIn as a global sales intern. How did you get these internships? Yeah, it's really, really a wonderful story for each of them. And the reality is, before I got the job at LinkedIn, HelloFresh wasn't even on my resume. The only thing that I had there was Scholastic. And I think sometimes when I speak with students, there's this boundary of if I want to get an internship at this insane, insane company that feels like such a stretch away, whether For me, that was LinkedIn. For you, it might be the FBI or maybe a research lab that's incredibly competitive. You may think that you have to have the most outstanding, outstanding experience on your resume. And you may think that someone who has 10 other internships that show that they're way more qualified means that they're going to get it over you. But that just wasn't the case with me. So Scholastic, I was really lucky because 
I knew I was looking on LinkedIn and I realized that I knew someone who knew someone who one of our really good family friends worked in a completely separate department at Scholastic. And so I asked him a little bit more about what it's like to work at the company that literally created my childhood. I mean, every single book fair. That was that was my <laughs> entire elementary school. Yep. Yeah. And I got to ask him what the company looks like on the inside. He told me a bit about it and he let me speak with a couple of his teammates. And then that was that. But then I ended up applying. I really hit it off with the recruiter and one thing led to another. I spoke with the people at Trade Klutz who are probably some of the most creative people I've ever met. And when I was speaking with them, it just became a really natural fit. So through the story with Scholastic, I was looking, it was March of my sophomore year. I had no internship. And so the first thing that I did was I asked, you know, who who do I know who is at a company that I may even be remotely interested in? I wasn't asking for a job, but I simply asked, and I think, Andrea, you always talk about this. I didn't call him and ask, can I have an internship? But I asked him, I just said, hey, I want to learn a little bit more about what life is like at Scholastic. And through the questions and through the conversation, doors ended up opening. But it was through that initial looking into who do I already know? And so that was how Scholastic existed. As soon as I signed my offer for Scholastic, I was very laser focused on landing LinkedIn the next summer. I was very, very goal oriented and I didn't know anyone at LinkedIn. And so what did I do? I cold messaged every single intern who had just announced that they were starting in around May and said, hey, congratulations on starting at LinkedIn. I'm just so excited to follow your summer journey. How did you find them? Sorry to interrupt, David, but how did you find those young people who had just signed on as interns? Good question. A, A lot of people fail to realize that the LinkedIn search bar right up on top, it kind of operates like its own Google search engine within the LinkedIn ecosystem. So all I had to do was type in LinkedIn intern and I filtered present companies, people who work at LinkedIn. And sure enough, all of these people came up and a lot of them were software engineers. So I had to add marketing, sales, recruiting. And sure enough, a lot of different people appeared. And one person who responded, her name was Marin. She was incredibly talented and worked in inclusion recruiting. So I messaged her and said, hey, I'm just fascinated by what inclusion recruiting even is. Is it okay if one day after work, I just, I call you to learn more about how you're job functions. And we had the most wonderful conversation. And I realized after that, she said, yeah, our job is mostly on the back end of HR, really on the recruiting strategy. I don't speak with students. And I thought, huh, that is awesome. And nothing that I want to do for the rest of my life. (laughs) Because I made it very clear. I said, look, the idea of recruiting excites me because I get to speak with people. And it doesn't sound like you do that in your job. So maybe you could help me as someone who does love speaking with people, who would you recommend I speak with? And she said, Oh, have you considered sales? And at that point, I really had it. But I said, I'd be open to a conversation. That intro led me to the one person named Raza, who ended up being my champion throughout the whole interviewing process gave me incredible perspective and ended up really cheering me on the entire way. So LinkedIn, one thing led to another. That was how I found that position and how that one intro turned into the job. And I'd be happy to talk about how the interview process went, but oh yeah, I know the Actually, last thing that you meant. Yeah. What I want you to talk about, because you did post about this on LinkedIn, or maybe it's on your, no, it's on your website. Oh, I know. You talk going. about <laughs> how you used 
creativity, I mean, you use creativity to connect with all those people, first of all, but how you also used creativity to land the internship at LinkedIn. Oh, yes. Well, this is probably the funniest story because I saw that the job posting became available. I wasn't expecting it. So rule of thumb, if you're speaking with someone who you know has internships, ask when they get posted because I wasn't ready. And one day I was on a bus coming back from the trip from New York. I saw that LinkedIn had posted their sales openings. I know for those tech companies, they may get 2000 people apply in one week. So I had to act quickly. So I created a resume from scratch that looked like the LinkedIn homepage. (laughs) I, I knew that I wanted to show that I'm really passionate about the product, about the company, and I want to go above and beyond. I was inspired by someone who applied to, I think, Twitter and Google and used either a Google homepage or a Twitter homepage as their resume. So I took a page out of that playbook. I made my resume that looked like a LinkedIn profile. I sent it to every person who I had developed a relationship with over the past four months. And fortunately, it got into the right eyes. And I actually got one recruiter reach out to me and say, you know, I worked at Disney and someone showed up to a career fair dressed as Cinderella. And this is up there with the most crazy things I've ever seen (laughs) anyone do. (laughs) You were like, I will dress as a LinkedIn homepage. I don't care. Whatever it takes. Right? I will. That will be my Halloween costume. I'm committed. (laughs) I am sworn. Let's do it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And... Yes, happy end to that story. But as you saw, there was still the coronavirus curveball. So David did get the internship. Sorry, he got the internship. And now he has leveraged that into the business leadership program, which has been postponed till the summer of 2021. Could you share a time in your professional life, Kelsey, when you struggled? I try to ask all of my guests this because I just think it's so important for our young listeners to know that we all have our ups and downs. And oftentimes the downs are where the greatest learning and growth happens. So if you could share a time and most importantly, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was that transitionary period between jobs. So I worked in engineering for two and a half years. I ended up leaving that company because my husband kind of got a job transfer and I didn't love it. It was slightly soul sucking working at a desk all day. And I was like, you know what? I'll I'll find something else wherever we go. And I have a good degree. I graduated from a great college. Like I, I will find something. So I left that job and we moved to Salt Lake City. And I started applying for jobs, putting out my resume, looking for openings, all of that good stuff. After about six months of multiple interviews with, frankly, mostly men, like older men, I quickly realized, like, I don't know if this city is the right market for a young female engineer and especially environmental engineering. Like they're very industry heavy in in Utah, which is awesome, but they just don't have a lot of great environmental positions open. At least they didn't when I was there. So, you know, six months of kind of just like putting out your resume, applying to multiple jobs a day, going to interviews, not getting the job, like wondering what you did wrong, like, you know, kind of questioning your entire career path of going to a good college and getting a good degree. And I still can't find a job. Like, I think that was really, that was really hard on me as kind of a, a, a high achiever and wanting to be independent and be able to, to like pay my own bills and stuff like that. It was 
all of a sudden relying on my husband's salary. And I think that was a big hit, big hit to, um, my ego. So, you know, I, I just, in that time I was like, maybe I should just do some random stuff. Maybe I don't actually want to do engineering. And I think I slight, I knew that a little bit in my heart of like, I don't know if I actually want to do this, but I kept trying because I, I spent five years in school paying for this degree. I need to, I need to do this. <laughs> and I think I finally just surrendered and I let that go. And I was like, you know what? I, I can do other things. I can get other skills. Let me just kind of like figure out what else is out there. So I drove Uber. <laughs> I was like one of the, I feel like I was one of the first female Uber drivers uh, because that was really early on and people were, wow. always, they were always surprised a woman was picking them up, like a young woman was picking them up. So that was great though. It was a great way to learn a new city. I waitressed at the ski, like at a restaurant near a ski resort. I did real estate photography. I did newborn photography and hospitals. And you know, it all sounds really mishmash and random, but I learned so many great social skills in all of those jobs that have really taken me very far. So, so no regrets. No regrets. No regrets. It was a weird time. I'll be honest with you. I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> but I think, it, you know, after about a year and a half of, of that kind of thing, I... I was still listening to health podcasts. I was still really interested. I was still learning. And I was like, you know, I should just see what kind of career I can make out of this. Like, what can I do in this space? I, I learn about it all the time. And so I started researching and I found a couple of online certifications where you could get a nutrition certification and have your own health coaching or nutrition coaching practice. And so I, you know, I battled with it back and forth for a while and I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to jump in and do it and drop everything else. So I got a certification, I went through a program, and then I started my own nutrition coaching business. And kind of the rest I, I told you is, is history. But I'm really, you know, that time it was painful for me because, like I said, I had spent so much time and money in school studying a specific thing, and I thought I was going to be doing that. And I just had a come to Jesus moment where I was like, I don't like this. I don't, I don't really love this career. Why am I continuing to try to get back into it. Let me see what I actually do love and I actually am passionate about. And so I'm really grateful that I listened to my gut instincts after a while. You know, I battled I battled them for for a long time, but and I'm I'm grateful that I had that space to to figure out what it was that I, I really wanted to do. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kelsey. It's it's almost as if the universe was helping you out, right? Because yes. if you had gotten one of those engineering jobs, you might still be doing that. You're so right. And I think it, it's so cliche to say everything happens for a reason. I kind of hate that term, but it is sort of true. Like, you know, if you're in the middle of something really painful and you don't know what you're doing, just have believe that it's going to turn out okay and trust yourself that that you're going to figure it out and i think if you can trust yourself and trust your gut instincts for the most part you're going to come out better for it and you're going to really love what you get into after that trust your gut in more ways than one <laughs> yes yes exactly You went to Georgia State University and you got a BA in business administration, finance and financial management services. And at the same time you were in school, when did you actually start working in the real estate sector and what were you doing and how did you get that job? I realized that I've always had something for scale. 
if this thing as an athlete doesn't work, what's big? So what's big? And I'm like, I can see the, all these buildings. It, it's, uh, this is the honest conversation. I'm like, okay, so real estate sounds big, like really big. So why don't I try to do something there? And, then, and that's, that's what attracted me to real estate. And it's a team sport as well. I'm like, okay, so it's got all these attributes. Like you have to start from the bottom. You have to work every day. There's wins, there's losses. So that's what attracted me to. So, so I started to start, uh, flip homes. I'd say, I'd say my junior year, I started to flip homes. I made no money, I lost so much money. After I graduated, I met up with Gerald Blonder, who was the, at the time, called the godfather of apartments in Atlanta. And this is, this is what's so cool about the story is, is that I met him after I had literally given up. So here's a Muhammad in the US, giving up because nobody wants to talk to him after September 11th, to be actually mentored by a very prominent Jewish developer in Atlanta. And that was, like, that, that was just so cool. And uh, I was with him for years. Like he was my mentor, not just in business, business in life for like, I'd say seven years. He, he kind of shaped my life during that period. And how did you meet him? Internship. It was an internship. And how did you get the internship? I forced my way through. I was like at the brink. I'm like, you, you, you can't give up. And I heard so much about him. And I'm like, you know what? Thinking as an athlete, this is the win. This, this, this is a win. So if you go in as a Muhammad to meet Gerald and get Gerald to sign you today as an intern, that's kind of cool. So that, that's what I went for. So I went in, I did the full, you know, the, the, the best sales pitch I've ever done in any project or any business was to convince him to take me under his wings. So did you set up an appointment or did you just like show up one day? I showed up one day. No, I showed up many days. I showed up many, many, many days. Now remember, this is, this is Atlanta. So a Muhammad showing up every day was like kind of weird. I was like, what? Why is he there? So he eventually saw me. I had to go through his son first and his son was very, very aggressive. Kind of kicked me out of his office. I'm, not gonna, I'm still gonna come back tomorrow. Because I, I believed so, in that whole dream kind of thing. So how many times did you go back to the office before you actually seven. connected? Seven. 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 I, I'll never and forget were you just like waiting? I'm sorry. Were you waiting to run into him? Is that what you were doing? That's what I was trying to do. Because I, I had nothing better to do. So I'd sit there the whole day. And the, the whole day? Was, Oh, yeah, yeah. I have nothing to do. You know, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm thinking like an athlete. So I'm like, this is training. Sit. If he shows up, he shows up. If he doesn't show up, it's not really a, a loss. Not yet. We'll come back tomorrow. And so you finally got in the room with him. And yes. what did you say? I said to him, here's the situation. I thought I was going to be this soccer player. I graduated as Muhammad. No one wants to talk to me. I'm not really after money, but I think I like real estate and I'm not sure why. Why don't you just try me? 
That's exactly what I said. He sat down and he's like, try you in what? I'm like, I don't really care in anything. That, 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 it, it, that's exactly how it happened. And, and he said, yeah, sure. Come back tomorrow. And what happened then? Then we started. Then, then I worked. I started also consulting at that time. He helped me get to, to this job in consulting. So he's like, I'll help you. I'll become your mentor. You don't have to tell anyone that I'm your mentor. You don't have to intern over here. The best thing for you to do is to go work for this person. Go work for this person because I know this person. And in the meantime, you will get access to me all the time because you're working for this person. And this is how I'm going to mentor you. And that's how the relationship started. And for years and years and years, I was like, I, I, I get to see him every single day. Look, there, there was a time, I, I always say this, like there was a time that I would actually take his charitable, the charity con uh, contribution checks to the synagogues. And back then we just worked on checks. So it was, it was so cool to drive up to a synagogue as a Muhammad post 9-11 and say, hey, here's your check. Have a good day. It was, it was just so human. There's something so human about that uh, that, that I really enjoyed. Your bio says that in 2002, you started working in low-income housing projects before you became a managing partner in one of the leading, was it real estate consulting practices in, in yeah, Atlanta? It was, it was a tax. It was a tax real estate consulting business, correct. I was fortunate enough, again, when I met with the, the lower-income housing tax credits, I was working with two developers, basically, or, or three, that are now that are huge. And I got to see the value of real estate through them. So we would go into these cities that are completely just torn down. And the idea was very simple. If you go in, rebuild this section of the city, you're going to get a tax break. That's just the simple, the simple law. And I would watch the whole project. I was like, wow, we just built a city for all those people. That is so cool. That's, that's when I really fell in love with real estate. When you can see what real estate does to people's lives. From then on, all the way up until 2012, that, that, that's all I worked on. MK, do you have any advice for our young listeners as to how they should seek out and cultivate a mentor or mentors in their lives. You just got to keep trying. Like, you know, we're today we give up too fast on anything. We, we call it a pivot. We call it this or that, but no one wants to put in the real effort. You know, I like just sit there every day for seven days a week, not knowing what the outcome is. If you know what you want, for now, if you know who you want to talk to as your mentor for now, then just go sit out there. Just go sit out for, for hours. So what if you get rejected? Who cares? Today, rejection is so overrated. We talk about it like, but I'm not going to sit there and wait. No, you are going to sit there and wait if you care that much. But what if he doesn't talk to me, if he didn't see me? Who cares? It's what you want to do. No one, no one told you to go with it. It's what you want to do. So it's just a lot of self-awareness, a lot of honesty about yourself. And then just go out there and do it. Fight for it. It sounds like you did research 
into who you wanted to become your mentor. Is that like the first step that they should take is to find out sort of who the best in whatever that industry might be is you know, and then so seek the them out? You know, it's not so much about the best. What you should do is if you figure out, if you sit by yourself and be honest about who you are and what do you want from that mentor or that internship or that company, and once you find that person that you, he or she, that you are attracted to, then go to them and never give up. That, that's it. See, again, today, today, it goes back to that, like, but I'm not going to go sit there. I don't know what I should do. No, you do know what you should do. You know, today it's just, it's just different. Like you should, to seek out a mentor, a mentor is a very big thing in your life. But you have to figure out what type of mentor you want. Not a book, not your parents, not your friends, not your girlfriend. You have to figure out what what's that gap that you have that he can fulfill for you. And if you fall in love with that one mentor, man, just go fight for it. Maria, I'd like to flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You graduated from Princeton with a BA in English, even though you started out pre-med. And I'm trying to remember, were you majoring in microbiology? What was it that you were? I started with molecular biology and then I ended with English and theater and dance. And I did an independent thesis. I wrote a play. So, yeah, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. <laughs> did you um, know what you were going to do with your English degree when you graduated? No, no. And I guess that's the lesson I learned. And the way I'm living my life right now is that you take every moment and learn from that. You keep track of your North Star and just walk towards it because you don't know how what you learn will change the course you take. That's the kind of world we live in today. And I guess, you know, it was hard to shift from pre-med to English because it seemed frivolous and certainly my parents weren't happy, but I learned how to understand people by making that shift. And ironically, both of those, by doing molecular biology, organic chemistry, and doing English and theater and dance, when I was with CNN, when I was, remember the sarin gas attack? Oh, yeah. Yes. So when I did that, and we went to talk to the professor, my organic chem background helped me try to figure out the molecular makeup of the sarin gas. So everything that you learn along the way, Make the choice to learn and it goes into your arsenal of where you wind up and what you become. You mentioned in our Espresso Shots episode and our young listeners should just check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. That when you were in your 20s, was it your mid 20s, mm-hmm. Mo? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You bought a one-way plane ticket to Ohio and you rented a car when you got there. 
Was it Ohio or Indiana? So I bought a one-way U.S. Airways ticket to Indianapolis, which is where the home of Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president, he's the one wedged inside of the Grover Cleveland sandwich. You know, Grover Cleveland is the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. So Benjamin Harrison's in the middle there. But Benjamin Harrison has a home in Indianapolis on Delaware Avenue in the old Northside Historic District. And I bought a plane ticket to go there because I was simply curious about who works at the Benjamin Harrison House. I grew up in Washington, D.C., going to Mount Vernon, driving down into Virginia to Monticello. I'd been to Hyde Park where FDR was his estate. You know, when you show up at Hyde Park, you're there to see Hyde Park. And the people who work there know that. If you're stopping at the Benjamin Harrison house, there's a better than even chance you're there to use the bathroom. I mean, and, and so, 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 so something told me that the docents, that the tour guides that worked there had to really put on a show to engage the people that came there so that they would care about Benjamin Harrison. And when I went there, indeed, there was a woman named Wanda Wheeler. She was 75 years old. She'd been volunteering at the Benjamin Harrison house in Indianapolis for 22 years. She's not getting paid. She put on a long Victorian gown and she gave tours to the place. I went on a tour with a group of second graders who happened to be there. And I'm telling you, Andrea, by the end of that tour, we wanted to sandblast Mount Rushmore and replace it with Benjamin Harrison, who was in fact a kind of lame president, kind of mediocre. But the point is, is that she threw herself into it and she made you care. And he was indeed president. He's worth knowing about. And it is, by the way, a beautiful home. I advise everyone to go there. It's a really great historic site with something like over 80% original artifacts. But I went from there, I rented a car and I went to the home of Rutherford B. Hayes in Fremont, Ohio, the home of James Garfield in Menor, Ohio. I made my way to Buffalo. I drove to Buffalo to the home of Millard Fillmore. And on that same journey in Ohio, back in Ohio, I went to Marion, Ohio, to the home of Warren G. Harding, who is one of our worst presidents. And there was something kind of funny about talking to a docent at the home of one of the worst presidents. I remember the guy there. I can't remember his name right now. But remember, he said, he sort of sighed and went, Look, I know he wasn't a great president, but we've got some really interesting artifacts here. And so, and, and I also met there a man named Craig Shermer, who's passed on now, who was so into Florence Harding, the first lady, that he dressed up as her to give tours of the house. And I've talked about that in the Espresso Shots episode, as you pointed out. But that trip was really fundamental for me because when I got on that plane, I didn't know what I was going to do with what I hoped to find. I just was curious and something in me, a little voice was trying to, and I, luckily I could hear, and I don't have great hearing, but luckily I could hear that little voice saying, go and do this thing. And it ended up getting me my job on The Daily Show, job television. Yes. It really did. I, I totally believe that. And yeah. look what else it's led to. Completely. It's led to mobituaries. It's led to your new book. Mm-hmm. Did you yep. ever think that? And that's 25 years ago. That's right. It's, um, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I didn't know where it would lead. I knew that this interest I had in history went pretty deep. And, you know, history is stories, right? So I didn't realize at the time how that could play out. Before I ask you the final time for coffee questions, I try to ask all my guests, Sean. I'm curious, how many careers 
would you say you've had to date? I say just for example that I've had four. I spent 20 years as a journalist. Then I went into the public relations field for a couple of years. Then I went into the nonprofit world for about seven years. And now I'm a startup entrepreneur, different type of startup entrepreneur, obviously, from you, and a podcaster. So this is my fourth career. Interesting. So I, I guess I'd have to say I would group my startups, even though they've been spread out over 20 years, as one career. Each one of them varied, obviously, but I wouldn't count each individual startup as a different career. I would count my time as in service as a career, both my time in the military and my time at the State Department. And honestly, I, I hope I get a chance to serve again at some point for this country. I would also group in there. I started a nonprofit at one point right after September 11th and have been very involved in the nonprofit space outside of just board work. And so I would include nonprofits as a career. And one career which I started in the past decade and plan to develop more over time is my career as an investor. So my wife and I started investing, angel investing in companies. And that has been just an absolutely wonderful experience and something I hope that I'll be able to carry forward. What do you think that message is or that lesson is for our young listeners who are still in school, may have just graduated, and are trying to think through what they're going to be doing with their lives and how life, especially on the professional side, tends to unfold. I think the lesson I, I wish I had understood when I thought I was going to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that was the only path forward, is that life does just what you said. It unfolds. And life is about experiences and garnering as many as you can. And so not being in a rush to get down any one path and embracing what is in front of you and really experiencing it, internalizing those experiences so that you can carry them forward into that next endeavor. But I can tell you that when I graduated West Point now 26 years ago, I had absolutely no idea that I would get into the startup world, let alone be running an AI machine learning company. Final time for coffee question, Zach. If you could go back to Vanderbilt and do it all over again, but <laughs> based on the wisdom that you have now, mm. what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, that's good. I would probably use this great phrase from St. Francis de Sales, who was born in what is now France, who's alive around 1600 and a little bit of a mystic. And he said, be who you are and be that well. So it's another way of saying what you and I were just talking about, Andrea. But I, I think when I was in college, I was too focused on the well part, like doing well, <laughs> you know? Not that I cared too much about my grades, but I certainly cared about what other people thought of me. I was really run by what other people thought of me. <laughs> One of my spiritual directors put it this way. He said, it sounds like you're taking your temperature in other people's mouths. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Oh my God, that is awesome. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what I was doing. And, and if I could go back and like sit down, like, you know, 18 year old Zach, I would just be like, dude, relax, <laughs> be who you are and be that well. I know like for part of me, that would be coming out of the closet. I didn't come out of the closet as gay until I was 27. And I just, you know, I try not to have regrets, but I think, gosh, how would my college experience have been different if I could have lived into 
the sexuality that I understand was a gift from God. You know, it was God's choice, not mine. And for the longest time, I was like, God, that was a terrible gift. I'm never going to use this gift you gave me. So, uh, you know, that's part of being who you are and be that well. But also, like, yeah, I would not have cared so much about impressing other people. I would have doubled my efforts to just enjoy being who I get to be. Well, my goodness, talk about a wonderful way to end the interview, Zach with that beautiful testimonial. And we should also let our Time for Coffee listeners know that we are doing this interview. Little did I know that it would be super relevant for us during Pride Month. So how exciting. It is clearly one of your many superpowers, Zach. You are such a gifted and beautiful human. I feel so grateful to our mutual friend, Michael McCarg, for having introduced us and for you enlightening me on so many things that I was not aware of. Yeah, the the tie-in to Pride makes a lot of sense, right? Because we started talking about, you know, shifting cultural norms. And the original Pride was, people are saying Pride was a riot. It was chaotic. And it was the only way people had to express themselves. James Baldwin, I think, was the one who said a riot is the vocabulary of the I don't know, he had a better way to put it, but it's 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 a, it's one of the ways that rage can be expressed. And we have shifted norms now by 2019, where for the most part, we understand that there are multiple sexualities and they're all equally valid. They're normal variants occurring within within nature. And that cultural norm has shifted, but we still have work to do because there are, you know, 30 plus states where I can be fired because I'm gay. So we have we have more work to do. We have more cultural norms to shift and we have to let our laws catch up with justice the way that our language is improving too. Thanks for tuning in to this K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.